0: Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, actually, I'm going to bring it back up. <laughs> That's better. Sure. What a wonderful time of worship we had, just being in God's presence. And I was saying to Alan this morning, you know, when, when you preach, at, just before you come to preach, you, you have these questions about, why am I doing this? And, well, is this a message that God wants? And... Um, just coming through the worship, I believe God has a word for us this morning, and hopefully I'll be faithful in bringing that to you in in a trusted way. Uh, perhaps a little bit of an introduction. Some of you might not be aware of who I am, um, as you'd see on your program. Um, my name is Brendan Carroll. Um, Sandy, my wife, and Joshua, and Nicholas, my two sons, and we've been in KZN for just over a year. Prior to that, we were in the Cape. We grew up, born and bred in the Cape, and. Uh, I came up to take the head position at Highbury Preparatory School, where I've been for the last year. Prior to that, I was headmaster of a private school in in Hrabou, just outside Cape Town. And before that, we spent a bit of time up on the Mozambique border, where I was head of a a government school um, there. Uh, And before that, I was a pastor, so we have kind of had a bit of a a journey as a family, but uh, Sandy's a music teacher, and uh, Joshua is in Cape Town current. Well, he's here on holiday, but he's going back um, tomorrow to Stellenbosch, where he's in his second year doing sports management, and Nicholas is in matric at Kersney. So that's us as a family. And when we arrived here in, in uh, Hillcrest, it was an interesting time at first, because what we decided to do was to just have a bit of space and look around. And uh, we were amazed, first at how many... Churches there are up here, and we later found out that it was the Bible Belt and the Mist Belt as well. But it's incredible that there are so many viable churches around an area. And so I said to Sandy, Let's not rush because so often you get involved in somewhere and then you're kind of consumed with the involvement. So let's go and visit and see what God is doing and the flavors that He has here in in, uh, the upper highway. And so we did that for a while. I mean, sometimes we visited once, sometimes we went two or three times, and then we settled in a church which we thought we were going to stay in. And then last year, just after Christmas, Christmas wasn't on a Sunday, as you know, but, and uh, the church we were, were, were kind of worshiping at didn't have a, a Sunday service, so we wanted to come somewhere, and, and somebody said, well, why not Sarepta? So we hadn't come to Sarepta. I don't know why we hadn't visited, so we came along and we've just stayed, um, And, and, you know, sometimes it's a a good thing to hear from somebody who's come in afresh why we've stayed. Because, you know, we just didn't want to go back anywhere else. And each Sunday we wanted to come again because we were afraid we might miss out on something that God's doing at Sarepta. And, And I just want to encourage you as a church... Joe was was preaching about the churches in Revelation, and I'm certainly not God or his angel giving the message over Sarepta. But just from our human perspective, when we came here, we had a true sense of maturity in in the body. And I want to just honor the the older members here at Sarepta. And it was something which was just so refreshing to have people who are, are sort of further on in life with a passion for God. We need that as younger people. We need older people who've gone before with a passion for God who we can follow. Um, The other thing which we found was a real liberty and a freedom in the body. Uh, A few weeks back, God uh, really met with me during the worship time. And during that time, for the last 16 years, I've been a headmaster of of schools, three different schools, or in in the pastoring ministry, and... Those are two incredibly lonely professions. Um, and for the first time, I feel God saying to me, here's a church where you can be who you are. Don't worry about what people think or, or, or that you've got to go out on Monday and don a tie on a suit and be a headmaster. Here, you're my child in my family. And it and that was that sense of liberty which we e- experienced here at Sarepta. And I want to encourage you to walk in that. Don't let that slip by the wayside. And then we arrived at a time when Costa came and did an apostolic input. And wow, what a, what a rich time that was. How many of you were here just as a show? Okay, quite a few of you. Great, that's wonderful. Over the Friday, Saturday, and on the Sunday. And Costa had an apostolic word for this church, which I believe that we must not lose hold of. I believe we we're in the shallow end of it, and we're actually needing to still uh, walk into that word which Costa brought. And part of the message that I'm going to bring this morning is linking into that, and hopefully it will bring us into the flow of of what Costa had for us. And a few weeks back, um, Jonathan brought a word too, and it was on that morning about chains and padlocks being broken. I can't remember the exact thing, but he spoke about padlocks being opened and chains being broken. And this week when I was preparing and at the the prayer meeting on Monday, uh, I had a real sense that that word was prophetic word linked to what Costa had brought with us. And the two were married together still to, to be um, appropriated. That's the word. Thank you, Alan. Uh, and as we walk into that apostolic word which Costa has brought to us as a church, as a body, the chains will fall away and the padlocks are going to be opened as we go. And, and Costa brought a word about coming and going. He spoke about the perichoresis, the dance of the Trinity. He spoke about how they came together and it was almost like you couldn't see the differentiation in the Godhead and then they went. And they came and they went. And it's this beautiful dance of love. And the sense of us as a church needing to come together as we are like this morning, come into God's dance, into his presence and then go. Come and go, come and go. And he spoke about finding God's heart, about having a world view which is a correct worldview. And if we saw the world in the way that Jesus saw it, we could minister in that same way. And finding God's heart, he said we were like downpipes, like drainpipes. And we were downpipes of God's grace and mercy into the world. And hopefully, if we, we are open to God, then he will bring his signs and wonders to accompany those actions which, which we do. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful word. And I think it's pregnant, And I think that we as a a church are needing to say, God, open our eyes so that we can see the world like you see it. Open our eyes so that we can see where you're moving in the world. I'm here. Pick me. Choose me. I'm a downpipe for your grace and mercy to flow into the area where you will have me. And we come together into God's presence and we go and we come and we go. Wonderful. But I have to admit that I don't always feel so wonderful about it. And I have to admit that may, maybe you, like me, at times, look around you at the world and go, what the heck is going on? You know, just recently in Brussels, there's those bombings that have happened, the stuff that's happening in, in, in Iraq as well, the stuff happening in Syria, ISIS, we look at the American presidential elections, which, I mean, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sitting here going, well, hmm, be interesting, let's see who actually wins this, and whether, you know, what's going to happen. And then, of course, we look at our own political situation and we go, well, if I was a comedian, I would have all the information and all the stuff I needed to work with. And I have to admit that sometimes, and even just recently, I've had conversations about passports and whether my father being a, a, well, my late father having been born in Britain, whether I'd be eligible for a British passport. And I had, that was a conversation that I had with a Christian person just in chatting. And it comes up often. Maybe you, like me, are sitting sometimes looking around and just going, really? Where where is God in all of this? What, What is it? How am I supposed to be a downpipe of grace and mercy when sometimes I just look around and I honestly feel a little bit helpless? And sometimes I look at my sons who are at that point of matriculating and studying and I think, where is their future? But church, God has plans for us. And we need to appropriate those plans. And this morning I want to start by, by and, and it's an interesting thing, because I usually would take a, a passage and unpack it. But I actually want to look at the book of Esther, the whole book of Esther, uh, and draw out of that what I've said on the, on the program, the hidden hand of God as seen through Esther. And so, so here goes. Esther was written at a time when the Persian Empire was at its zenith. The per- Persian Empire was the great empire at the time. Um, it was, had its 15 minutes of fame, as empires do, and between the sort of Babylonians and the Greeks. But their king was a man by the name of Xerxes. In 480 BC, he ruled over 127 provinces, all the way from India right through to Ethiopia, which was known as Kush in biblical times. Here's a man who was incredibly powerful, He was the most significant person in that time. A bit like maybe Queen Victoria in the British Empire. Or we think of some of the political leaders of today where you think that person has power. Xerxes was like that and even more. You see, he lived in a time when kings, their word went. Nobody questioned. Nobody said, how high must I jump? They just jumped. If he clicked his fingers, you could be put to death, literally. And that was the time where he... He um, lived in. And Xerxes had his capital in a place called Susa, the same place where where Daniel received a vision from God 80 years earlier. Now, the Jewish people, just a bit of history, they went into captivity under the Babylonians, and they were taken away from from their homeland, and they were taken off as as slaves. And we can read about that in the end of 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. And then when the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, the Persians were kinder to the Jews. And so they said to them, you know what? Go back to your homeland if you wish. And so we have Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra and then finally the group with Nehemiah. And we, we read about that where they're rebuilding the wall. And so these groups went back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland. But there was a group which uh, I read and it says it could be as many as 2 to 3 million Jewish people, a significant number who stayed behind and didn't go back. Perhaps they were born there, perhaps they were comfortable, perhaps their their lives were were set, and they thought, well, I'm just going to stay. And they chose to stay. The book of Esther is written amongst those people at that time, those Jewish people who stayed in, in that area in Susa. And Xerxes, I said, was a very powerful man, and he was intoxicated by his power. So much so that he decided to show it off. And so he then had this, uh, it's kind of like an open day at a school, I suppose, but for 180 days. And people could come and see his power and all go, ooh, and ah, and and, and, ogle, and oh, this is amazing. And at the end of it, he had a party which lasted for seven full days. Seven days where it was free. There's nothing like a free lunch. Well, he gave free lunches, suppers, and breakfasts for seven days. Open bar, open buffet, you could just help yourself. It was a sign of saying, guys, look at me, look who I am, this is what I can do. Tuck in. And it, we're told in uh, verse 10 in chapter 1 that Xerxes got to a point where he was drunk. He was intoxicated. Back in the Cape, we'd say, he was lekker And uh, as a result, he then decided, well, I'm going to, in this state, show off my real prize. And so he called for his beautiful wife, his queen Vashti. But Vashti didn't want to come. And so we read in verse 12, it says the following. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. You see, she wasn't going to stoop that low. She had a position to uphold. She was a queen. And she didn't feel like she wanted to come in amongst a whole lot of drunkards to be shown off her beauty. And uh, so in verse 17, the king's advisors said, the queen's conduct will become known to all women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. So, in verse 19, a royal decree is made, and the queen is banished from the king's presence. The queen is banished from the king's presence, never again to come before him. She's no longer the queen. You can imagine what that must have been like. I mean, the women's magazines must have gone ballistic. You can imagine the Persian edition of Cosmopolitan. It must have had like a big photo of the beautiful queen on the cover and something like Vashti from Ravishing to Vanishing, uh, you know, five-part series. I could just imagine the, the in the hair salons that's, darling, have you heard? Uh, in, in the school parking lots, the four-by-four four all-terrain chariots where the mommies would be talking, it was on the lips. Vashti's history. So, chapter two, we've got replacement mode is now on, and the king needs a new queen. But she needs to be three things. She needs to be young, of course. She, of course, needs to be beautiful. And she needs to be a virgin. And so we have the very first, world, world's very first beauty pageant ever. And uh, we're looking for Miss Persia. Now, there just happens to be a Jew in the court, and his name is Mordecai. And he just happens to have a cousin, sort of like a daughter, because a foster daughter, ever since his parent, her parents, his uncle and aunt, had died. And this lady was young, She was beautiful, and she was a virgin, and her name was Esther. And so in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, and this is how it describes her, she was lovely in form and features. That in modern times is like, yeah, baby. I mean, she's like hot. (laughs) This is Esther. And so we're told it takes 12 months before somebody can go into the presence of the king. That's how important he felt he was. First, for six months, she had to go through cleansers and toners and moisturizers, and then for six months, perfumes. Um, I mean, you can imagine Revlon and Coty and L'Oreal and Chanel all fighting for by appointment to his majesty. Because that's a lot of stuff for, for 12 months. And when she was ready to go in verse 16 and 17, she comes to the king and this is what it says. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the 7th year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Queen Esther. Ba-da! Wonderful. But, you see, not all is happy and healthy in the, in the empire. And in chapter 2 and verse 21, Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And he goes and tells Esther this, and she relays the message. The plot is overturned and averted. And Mordecai is given the credit for that. And then it's recorded in the annals, the history of the empire. Remember that because that's important later on. So we come to the end of movement one in this act or this play or movie. Chapter three, we've got the second movement. Enter now the evil orc. I mean, every, every like, good movie has to have the evil oak. And here comes Haman the Horrible. And Haman is the prime minister of Persia, very powerful man. But he also is very full of himself. So much so that he decrees that everybody, when he walks down the road or rides on his horse, everybody has to bow down to him as he comes. And everybody does because, well, that's what you do if the prime minister says so. Well, everybody except for one person. Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to bow down to an Amalekite because he's a Jew and he worships one God. And so when these people are bowing, Mordecai stands up. And it so annoys Haman that he he goes to the king and he says to the king, listen, these Jews are traitors and they should all be wiped off from the empire. So the king agrees. Remember, the king can click his fingers and anything can happen. And so in chapter 3 and 13, it reads, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. All of that because of one man who had an inflated opinion of himself. Now you can imagine, amongst the Jewish community, this great mourning. And Esther hears of it. And so she sends some gifts and a message to to Mordecai and says, you know, cheer up. Here's something to cheer up with. And so he sends a message back. And in chapter 4 and 8, he says, take a copy to Esther of this decree and urge her to go into the king's presence. Now, you can't do that. We read before, you've got to have preparation before you go into the king's presence. You can't just cruise in and say, hi, here I am. I want to say something. And, uh, you know, his previous wife was got rid of because she didn't want to come when she called him. Now, imagine somebody just coming. What would happen? And Mordecai replied in chapter 4 and verse 14, and listen to this passage. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, church listen to this, who knows, but that you may have come to royal position for such a time as this. Who knows, you may have come to royal position for such a time as this. And so Esther then says, well please pray for me. I'm going to go to the king even though it's against the law. And if I perish, well I'm going to die. If I die, I die. That's huge courage. Now, in the movie, you can imagine the sort of dramatic moment, the music playing in the background. We're all waiting to see what's going to happen. So chapter five opens, but there's actually no drama. You see, Xerxes is a hot-blooded man, and he's got this beautiful wife, and she chooses to come into his presence. I mean, hang on. I mean, any, any guy would go, hey, she's choosing to come to me. She's initiating this thing. I'm not even asking her, so there's no problem with this. And he goes, well, Esther... That's oh, nice to see you. I haven't seen you for ages. He says, I'm so pleased that you're here. In fact, I'm so pleased that I'll give you half of my kingdom. That's 63 provinces. That's not bad. Uh, and she says, well, actually, I don't want that. All I want is for you and your prime minister, Haman, to come to dinner at my place. And so they go off for dinner. And in chapter 5, verse 6, at the dinner, they've had a nice time. And then Xerxes, once again, he says to Esther, please, Tell me, what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. She says, "No, um, you know, all I want is actually for you to come back again tomorrow night for another dinner because I enjoyed it so much." So the invitation is accepted. Now you can imagine Haman. This guy's happy. He's uh, been for dinner at the queen's place with the king. He's going back home tonight. Uh, he's going back again, and as he goes, everybody's bowing except for Mordecai, and he is. By the time he gets home, he's got like road rage. And he arrives home and his wife says to him, man, dearie, man, you know, what's the matter? Why are you looking so frustrated? And he says, it's that Jew, Mordecai. He says, everybody bows, but Jew, that Jew won't. So his wife says, don't worry, dearie. You know what? I've got a great idea. Why don't you get workmen tomorrow to build a very big gallows, like big, 75 feet tall. And then why don't you go to the king and ask for Mordecai and see if he, he'll let you hang him. I mean, beautiful. I mean, Everybody needs a wife like that. I mean, you can imagine she's like a biker chick with leathers and whatnot. But, but Haman reckons, not a bad idea. Let's do that. So it appeals to him. And he thinks, tomorrow I'll build the gallows. I'll hang Mordecai in the evening. I'll go drink Chardonnay with the queen. Hey, life's good. But not even in his wildest dreams can he imagine what is going to happen the next day. The end of Movement 2, Chapter 5, Haman's in control. God's people are under a death threat. But Esther's the queen. So chapter 6 is the turning point in the story. In chapter 6, you see Xerxes can't sleep. He's sleepless in Susa. And uh, nothing puts you to sleep more than reading. And particularly when you read the annals, the history of your own reign. I mean, that must be quite boring. So he asks to to read them. And uh, he happens to read the assassination plot and how Mordecai had averted it. And um, he says... Tell me, this Mordecai the Jew, what was done for him? I mean, what, what did we do to say thank you for this? Because that was quite a big thing he did. Oh, nothing. The reply comes. At that moment, Haman, the horrible, comes in to ask Xerxes if he can please hang Mordecai. And just before he can talk, Xerxes says to him, Tell me, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Oh, Haman thinks, hello, this is my chance. Yeah, Obviously, he's talking about me. So he says, well, let's think. Okay. He should have your royal robe put on him, put him on a a war horse, and let one of the princes lead him through the city, shouting, this is what is going to be done for the man that the king delights to honor. So Xerxes says, well, excellent idea. Go and do that for Mordecai the Jew. And so in chapter 6 and 11, it says, so Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, probably through clenched teeth, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. What a bad start to an awful day. So we get to chapter 7, and it's off to the queen's place for dinner. And again, the king repeats, what do you want? What's your petition? And in verse 3 of chapter 7, the queen answers and says this, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. And so she reveals her roots to him, that she is actually a con- condemned Jewess. She tells him that he has been tricked. And so he says, well, who? And in verse 6, Esther said, that ad- adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Now the king's in turmoil. You can imagine his queen and his chief advisor are enemies. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know that she was a Jew and that he decreed that she is now must be dead. And so he goes off into the garden to think. And while he's there, in the meantime, this Haman, who's now terrified, falls on the couch where Esther is reclining, pleading for mercy. And in verse 8, it says that just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king then exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's in my house? What is to be done with this man, he says. What shall we do with him? One of the attendants says, Well, actually, sire, it just happens to be a gallows outside. It's 75 feet high. So the king says, take him and hang him. You see, we're dealing with a historic book here. So let's allow God's wisdom to interpret God's history. The writer of Proverbs in 26:27 says, If a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back at him. All our strategies and plans without the fear of God will come to nothing. Proverbs 21, verse 30 and 31 says, There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So here we have in the story, Haman is hung, Mordecai is made prime minister, and the Jews are allowed to defend themselves and they triumph over their enemies. And even to today, a celebration known as Purim was inaugurated back then. And even today, it's still celebrated how God overthrew and used Esther to allow the Jewish people to survive. And the last verse of Esther says, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent amongst the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. Because he worked for the good of all his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So what an amazing story. What an incredible story. You know, this is the sort of thing that that life is made of. This is the thing that movies could be made of. It ends with Esther as queen, Xerxes is king, and Haman is dead. Mordecai is now the prime minister, and the people are saved. Now, if it was a movie, at the end of it now, we'd see the sort of credits rolling up and the names of the different characters, and you'd certainly see Esther's name coming up, the beautiful Jewess queen played by, now I'm choosing, Penelope Cruz. After that, you'd see the name of, of Xerxes coming up, this powerful Persian king played by Russell Crowe. Then you'd see Haman, the egocentric hungry official. His name would roll up, played by Anthony Hopkins. And even Vashti, I mean Vashti just was there in the beginning, but even Vashti's name would come up. Perhaps Catherine Zeta-Jones, I don't know, but there we go. But, But here, notice something. A name that you wouldn't see coming up. You see, Esther comes straight after the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is dominated by the name of God. Nehemiah calls people to pray 12 times. 12 times, God hears and answers. The book is about Jehovah, about God dominating the pages of Nehemiah. Then comes Esther immediately after that. And the main character is never named. You see, his influence, God's influence is seen all over and throughout the book of Esther. On every page, in every character. But he's never, ever named. His hidden hand is at work throughout the book of Esther. You see, and people might say, well, it's just a book of coincidences, isn't it? I mean, it's a coincidence that Mordecai just happened to be in court when a new queen is required. Maybe it's a coincidence that he happened to have a cousin who was a hottie. Coincidence that Mordecai hears of the plot to assassinate the king. Perhaps it's also a coincidence that Xerxes couldn't sleep. And that he opened the annals just at that place where he read about that plot. It's coincidence that Haman speaks to the king at the moment and gets asked what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. Maybe it's coincidence that the king comes into the room when Haman is falling on the couch with Esther. Maybe it's coincidence. No, it's not. You see, people can try and put natural explanations onto everything. But natural explanations are not good enough. You see, there's a hidden hand of God at work in our lives and in our world. Even in times like now, where you look back and go, what is going on? God's hand is at work. We might not understand it, but His hand is working. You see, in Proverbs 21, listen to this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. See, this was written in a time when kings and rulers had ultimate authority. Think about today, our presidents, our rulers. There's some people, I mean, the Barack Obamas, Vladimir Putins, Robert Mugabe's, Jacob Zuma's, who, you know, Proverbs says that their hearts are in God's hand. And he directs them like a watercourse. So now let's, let's just think about what Costa brought us earlier this year. You see, Costa is saying that God is at work in the world. We need to be opening our hearts to say, God, where are you at work in the world? Where is this hand of yours moving? I want to be part of that. Show me the part that I must play. Let me be your downpipe of mercy and grace, just as we saw happening in this story. Because... God doesn't work in a vacuum. You see, God works through people. God uses you and me to work for him and to work his purposes. Even if it's the courage of Mordecai who wouldn't bow, God used that. If it's through the courage of Esther who said, well, if I die, I'll die, but I'm going to go. God used that. And God gives wisdom beyond our knowing. You see, why didn't Esther tell of her Jewishness earlier? And why did Esther tell Zirk not tell him rather at the, the first dinner? Why did she then say, well, come back again? She didn't know that he would have a sleepless night. God gave wisdom to people beyond their understanding. And he's going to do that for us, for you and for me. In times and places where maybe we are just being available and saying, God, here I am. We may not understand it now, but he's going to work out his purpose. He'll do for us also because he doesn't work in a vacuum. See, there's nothing. There is nothing. There's no cell. There's no virus, no doctor, no politician, no economy, no nation, no weapon outside of his control. He can take the productivity of Haman in the story and work it for good. He could take a weak Roman governor and Jewish activists. He could take the evil act of a cross and cause us this year in 2016 to call it Good, good Friday such an evil act but God works through things. You see in the book of Esther Xerxes' name appears 190 times. God's name does not appear once. Yet he's in control throughout the whole book. But do you find it easy to trust? In today's world so often we don't find it easy to trust and can we actually really trust each other? You see the older we get it becomes more difficult too. Children find it so much easier to trust. And that's why God says, be like children. And I remember when I was a boy, I mean, I trusted my dad all the time. I never, ever thought for once he was lost. I never, ever thought for once he didn't know what to do or that he was scared. And then I became a father. And I I guess my sons probably, maybe, I don't know, thought the same of me. But I can tell you there were times when I was lost or I I wasn't quite sure what to do. But as a child, it's easy to trust. You see, Esther's here to show us that there's only one person who we can trust fully. That's why Esther's here. Because God loves us. He knows what's best for us. Sometimes we think we know what's best for each other. But God knows, really knows what's best for us. And also, he has the sovereign control and authority to be able to bring about the best And the purpose for us. So we can trust God absolutely. The book of Esther is there for us to look at God and say, I can trust you, God, completely. Even though I don't understand it. Just an example from my life, which I often think back on. My late father was a very simple man. Grew up in Manchester, born just before the Second World War to illiterate parents. But he loved God. He got saved just before I was born the church called St. James in in Kenilworth in Cape Town. And he started the Sunday school there and he grew it. When it got to 1,000 children, he then sort of handed it over to somebody else and he was getting a bit old to do Sunday school in those days too. But we lived in a suburb called uh, Claremont. And around the corner was a family who would just gone through a massive split. And the mum and three children lived there. There were two boys, Chris and Jacques. And... My dad, we had one of those old combis. It was the 1970s, you know, those square ones. And uh, we had room in the combi. And on a Sunday morning, he'd drive the 200 meters around the corner. Kurs and and Jacques would jump in and we'd go off to Sunday school. And we'd do that until we moved out of Claremont away from the area. And I lost contact with with Jacques and and Chris until high school, where they were at the same high school as I was. And I remember Kurs coming to school drunk after the matric dance and joyriding the school tractor, knocking over the poles, the rugby poles. Uh, he was that sort of guy. And then we lost track again. And when my, my father passed away, at his funeral, uh, Frank Ratiff, who if any of you know him, he's just an evangelist of note, and he certainly wouldn't have taken missed the opportunity, and he put out an altar call at my dad's funeral. And I saw Quirce walking down. And I couldn't believe it. I hadn't seen him. we were talking 20, 30 years since the Combi days of picking him up. And afterwards, I went to Chris and I said, hey, Chris, what are you doing here? And this was his response. He said, I was looking in the newspaper and I just happened to see the death notice. And I thought, that's Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom who took me to church. I must go to his funeral. And he met Jesus. Now, How, how does... A person know the, the, the consequences of your actions. Now, I love that story because it's close to my heart, and I, and I lived through it. But at the time of driving 200 meters, there was no knowing that 30 years later, a person would respond in faith and find eternal life. All that was happening was a downpipe of grace and mercy of saying, "God, what's happening here? These people are in a desperate place. Let me just pick them up. Just a simple act. And what I believe Costa challenged us is exactly that. What are we doing as God's downpipes? We may think it's so insignificant. We may not even understand or realize what's happening. But Esther's the queen, and God's in charge, and his hand is moving. And sometimes, I mean, we might have situations where we think that's the end. I mean, we we might apply for a job and get a letter saying, well, sorry, you know, you're not successful and you could be going, that, I really thought that was for me. Maybe even a company's downsizing and they say, Well, you were the last in, you're the first out. Sorry, you've got to go. How do we respond in that situation when you're sitting thinking, I've oh, got a family to feed? Where do I go to? Maybe your husband or wife says to you, Well, I'm out of here. Sorry, I've had enough. You know, this marriage is over. I'm leaving. And we could be sitting in a space going, Now what? Your heart is broken. Perhaps a doctor even gives you a call and says, Listen, I'm sorry, but you're not going to live beyond the end of the year. I mean, these are situations in life where many people go through, and we can be sitting there going, well, how do I respond? There's no wisdom, no plan, no insight that falls outside the sovereign care and keeping. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same forever. You see, when things looked so bleak, Esther was on the throne. When things look so bleak, our eternal King Jesus reigns. And we sang about that this morning. The scriptures tell us that. You see, there are times in our lives when we may not know or understand what on earth is going on around us. But our shepherd reigns and nothing falls outside his oversight. Nothing falls outside of his sovereign care. So here's the question. Or questions. Are we asking him what he wants us to do? To be his hands and feet. And it may be as simple as. Drive 200 meters and pick up two little boys. And this is a challenge I think. Which Costa gave to us as a church. Are we asking God. Saying here I am God. It's just me. But your hand is at work. What do you want me to do. To be your hands and feet here. On earth. Are we looking for God's workings. His fingerprints. His fingerprints. They're out there. Are we seeing and looking what is God doing and then deciding to partner along with him? You see, Esther was a downpipe of God's mercy and his grace. And God is calling us to come and to go. Come, go, be my downpipe. Be my mercy and grace. When it seems as if all else is falling apart around me, I'm on the throne. When it feels as if there's no hope, I'm on the throne. Open your eyes, open our hearts, let's seek him. And when we do this, I believe that that prophetic word about the chains and the padlocks is going to come true. It's when we come to that place and say, God, here I am, that he's going to drop chains amongst our body, amongst this church called Sarepta, he's going to unlock padlocks, and he's going to lead us into places where we never dreamt that we could go. So here's my challenge. Are we downpipes? It's been a a wonderful challenge for me and and our family over the last few weeks. Coming out each, each Sunday after church and going into the normal work day and thinking, God, what have you got here? What have you got planned? Show me your way. Here's my heart. I'm open. I have the privilege of fathering 600 sons every week. But what do you want me to do for one or two of them that I don't know? But 30 years from now, whole families might be changed because they find salvation. And in finding salvation, they'll bring salvation to their household as well. We don't know that. But are we expectant? Because it's so easy to look around and go, what on earth is happening? This world's in disarray. But God is on the throne. God has won the victory. We celebrated it here at the table this morning. We stood together in unity, and said, Father God, we thank you that you gave of yourself so that we can walk in victory, so that we can walk in freedom. Let's take that freedom. Yeah. And if there's something holding you back this morning from taking hold of God's freedom, it's not worth it. Let it go. Let's walk into God's freedom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, oh, we stand in your courts this morning. We are just so grateful and thankful that we can know you by name. That you revealed your name years back. That you are the I am. You were, and you are, and you are to come. You are the creator, God. You not only created the world, but you created the time and space in which we live. And you broke into that time and space to come and rescue us because of your great love for us. We thank you that we can work for you. And that that work is a pleasure. We thank you that you have planned things for us in advance to do. And I ask God that as a church this morning, as a, your body here, known as Serepta, that you will enable us, you'll free our hearts, to open our hearts and our minds to you. And say, Lord Jesus, let your will be done in my life. And when we look at the s- situations around us that we won't be overcome, But we will remember that Esther's on the throne and that you placed her there. Oh, God, thank you so much for the wonderful things that you've done in our lives. Thank you so much for the way that you've blessed us. Thank you so much that we are going to enjoy you forever and ever into eternity. And that the life that we're living now is just the beginning of eternity. Oh, God, thank you that you are all-powerful. We bless you. We praise you. We say, come Lord Jesus.